You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Happy New Year, Will! Happy New Year, David! And Happy New Year to all of our listeners! 2018 has drawn to a close, and this is episode 51 of the Common Descent Podcast. It's, I, I think it's kind of fitting that we're, we're rolling over the second half of 100 into the new year. I don't know if that's just me having fun with numbers, but I like that. <laughs> now, speaking of numbers, Will... I was thinking back over our episode topics that we have discussed, and I realized it has been 48 episodes since the last time we talked about Squamates. You are correct. And this is unacceptable. Listeners, our topic for this this episode is Mosasaurs. Yeah. And I'm so excited. So, (laughs) Mosasaurs are... An ancient group of marine reptiles, one of the famous Mesozoic marine reptiles. In this episode, I will endeavor to answer the long-standing burning question, why are mosasaurs the best aquatic animals of all time? And I will answer this question in seven parts. (laughs) And over the course of this episode, we will discuss their evolution We will discuss their biology, and we'll talk about some of the really cool information that uh, paleontologists have been able to learn about them from some really cool specimens. Yeah. Now, I want to specify aquatic being, like, just aquatic, not not aquatic terrestrial. Animals that live in water. And amphibious lifestyle. Fully aquatic. Just fully. Yeah. No, that that we can agree on. That we can agree on. (laughs) Well, this episode topic was requested (laughs) by Eric, Jake, Jonathan, and Pablo. Thank you all for requesting it. Thank you. We hope you enjoy. Before we get started, as usual, some announcements. First and foremost, a reminder that the entirety of 2018, we started this year in episode 26. It is now episode 51, and this year of the Common Descent podcast has been brought to you in large part by the donations from our patrons. Mm -hmm. Huge thanks to our patrons, to all the new patrons from this year, to all the patrons who have been with us since before that. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast this year. We hope you've enjoyed the goodies you get on Patreon. And we're looking forward to sharing more with you. One of those goodies, of course, is that some of our patrons get shout-outs on the podcast. Now, this episode's a little bit unusual because we don't have a new patron to announce but last episode we shouted out one of our new patrons a patron named colleen and colleen has informed us that she became a patron on behalf of her boyfriend who is a huge fan of the podcast she claims even a bigger fan than she is (laughs) and she subscribed on his behalf as a christmas present so to colleen's boyfriend mark Here's your shout out. Merry Christmas. Happy belated Christmas, Mark. And Happy New Year. And thank you and thank all of our patrons and thank all of our listeners for sticking with us on the podcast through this year. It's been very exciting. And there is one other thing that is coming out. It should, it, it, By the time this podcast is out, it will be coming out the next day. 
and that is our end of the year Q&A. Yeah. Where we have done a mailbag type of episode. We answered something like 50 questions. Yeah. It's a long, it's a long one. But so much fun. Super fun. And then the last thing to announce, the final, th- the very last thing to announce for the year of 2018 is that it's going to be 2019. Yeah. That's what's in next 2019. Year. That is ne- that's what's that's what's happening. That's what's coming up in 2019. We will be continuing our regularly scheduled program. We will be continuing to do other series, and at some point, as part of the celebration of the end of the year, we will be releasing another blooper reel. Yes, for our patrons. So if you are a patron, keep an eye out for that. If you're not a patron, hey, here's some incentive. Maybe <laughs> you gotta hear us mess up. And I believe that's all the announcements. Have Mm -hmm. I missed anything? Not that I can think of. I think we're good to go. Well, then you know what time it is. Every episode, even this, the final episode of the year, we talk about some news. News from the world of evolution and paleontology that has struck our fancy and that we would like to strike you with. Strike your fancy with. Will, <laughs> what, what's, what's happening in the news? I have a news piece about cats with big teeth. I like those. This is a bit of recent research that has analyzed saber-toothed cat skulls and Ooh. found some evidence about the way different saber-toothed cat skulls are constructed that might tell us how they were hunting, or at least how they were using their bites. Oh. Which is pretty cool. Oh. Now, this research is by Figueroa et al. in Current Biology, and the article we'll be linking to is by Brian Sweetek in Scientific American. That Brian Sweetek is a cool guy. He's really cool. Now, saber-toothed cats, one of the probably most famous fossil groups of animals out there because they look cool, are really interesting Very awesome, but not as well as understood as we might all like them to be because those big, long things that they're so famous for are still being discussed how they were using them. Uh, How how were they using these sometimes ridiculously long saber fangs during hunting? It's, It's still being discussed, still being parsed out and debated. The poster child of this group is Smilodon fatalis. It's the the Smilodon. That's the one that you're typically thinking of. It was the largest and latest, or at least one of, of the saber cats. It had the really ridiculously long fangs. Yeah. Yeah, not all saber-toothed cats had equally length saber teeth. Yeah, they weren't all just these. There were some that really, you wouldn't probably, if you just looked at the skull, you probably wouldn't even notice that they would count as a saber-tooth. They, they have just long canines like a lot of cats do. Yeah, whole range. So you had a whole huge variety. And that's kind of one of the points that the researchers make here is a lot of the other saber-toothed cats kind of get overshadowed by Smilodon. Yeah. You know, we always hear about Smilodon and a lot of research goes into Smilodon, but not as much into the other varieties. In fact, they even reference one technical article that was titled the other saber tooths. <laughs> so, like, oh, poor saber tooths. So they they wanted to kind of look at this variety and see what we might be able to learn by looking at, you know, comparing and contrasting. So, quick introduction: there are two main groups of saber tooth cats. This is not include all of them, but there are two big overarching groups. There's the scimitar toothed cats and the dirk toothed cats. Right. Smilodon is a dirk toothed cat, and 
the homotherium, the homotherium lineage is the scimitar toothed cats. Right. Which is both very cool names. All right. I love the scimitar toothed cats. Yeah. These two uh, groups do have some characteristics. And for the research, they use two of the most famous members, Smilodon fatalis and homotherium serum as the kind of representatives. What they did is they looked at the structure of these skulls to figure out what this might tell us about their feeding habits and how they were using their fangs. Now, we already know that they are different hunters because their bodies are very differently proportioned. Smilodon has long fangs, beefy body, powerful front limbs. Yep. Big wrestler's arms. Big, big wrestler bulldog cat. Yeah. While Homotherium has shorter canines and longer, lankier legs and more of a runner's body. So typically this has been interpreted as Smilodon being an ambush hunter but not a chaser and Homotherium being a pursuit, a chase down its prey kind of hunter. Right. So they looked at the skulls and what they were looking for is how the bone in the skull is laid out and organized. And they found some interesting things. So when they looked at Smilodon's skull, they found a buildup of bone at the front that is called cortical bone. Mm-hmm. Now, cortical bone is a very stiff, very tough type of bone that, according to their analysis, would make the skull very strong on biting, but not side-to-side stresses. So basically, it's really good at biting, but if there's any struggling while they're biting a thing, it could break stuff. Right. It's not like shaking its head like a dog. Exactly. So it's just that down bite. Now, Homotherium had less cortical bone up front, but had more trabecular bone in the back portion of the skull. That is a more flexible type of bone. Deals with stresses better of just Uh like flexing. So this means that it wouldn't have had quite the stress resistance of biting, but could handle side to side stresses much better. Right. What this suggested to the researchers is that Smilodon would be able to bite very well and deep with its fangs, but only if the prey was motionless. And that's what they think likely it was using its big powerful arms for. Pin the prey yeah. down and bite. One one bite, one kill. One bite, one kill while restraining them with its big gorilla arms. Yeah. <laughs> Homotherium, they think was probably because it actually, the skull resembles the bone layout very much of a lion, was probably doing a very similar hunting technique as lions of chasing the prey down and then clamping onto the neck and killing the prey with a death bite to the neck while the prey struggles and tries to resist, just holding on and able to actually go in. What this means is that the Smilodon skull construction takes advantage of the big arms but can't handle a prey that's loose. Homotherium putting more of the flexibleness into its skull allowed it to still be a runner because it doesn't have to pin things. Right, right. So it looks like these hunting techniques are, you know, the the skull is confirming the hunting techniques they had thought. And the cool thing about this is this technique can be used on many other saber-toothed cats and even the Nimravids, which is a group of mammals that are very similar looking to saber-toothed cats, but not actual cats. Right, the false saber-tooths. Yeah, so this is something that could be used, you know, across the board for many of these types of animals. Very cool. That makes me wonder if they were hunting different kinds of animals. Yeah. Like, if you are, you know, if, if you're 
clamping on with your face and bringing something down, you know, does does the saber tooth, does the smilodon have to take down a creature that's small enough for it to hold it down with its arms? Yeah, well, it's kind of like how tigers typically are going after fairly small deer, even though they're the biggest, you know, big cat out there. Right. You know, they're not going after giant wildebeest and zebra-sized things like lions typically are. Right. Now, to be fair, lions have help they do but that's but that's that was kind of the point i was making is that just because you're big and beefy doesn't mean you were going after the biggest thing oh, very you know? true very true your your technique is going to be different i actually did a i did an informal little bit of, of searching because I, I was answering a question online at one point where someone was like what what do we think about prehistoric animal diets and if you look across modern animals most modern animals, their primary prey is something significantly smaller than they mm-hmm. are. It is very rare for, for a predator to specialize in something its own size, especially yep. if it hunts by itself. Yeah. No, there's not many animals. Snakes. Snakes get to do cool stuff like that. They can, but even then, no. most most of the, they they can do it, just yep. like a lion could take down a horse. Yep. But that's it's a dangerous thing to do. Well, and it, it also just makes sense from a wrestling point of view of if I if I want to wrestle you, if you weigh half my amount, you know, half my weight, then I can throw you around easily. Yep. It's less dangerous for me mm-hmm. as the predator. Hey, speaking of anti-predatory behaviors, my first bit of news is about feathers. Ooh. Prehistoric feathers, Cretaceous feathers. Yeah. In amber. Because all the best, just the last few years, lots of lots of great stuff coming out of Amber. This is research, as so many of the Amber studies are, is by Lida Shing et al. Oh, hey. This time in the Journal of Paleogeography. And we'll link to an article by John Pickrell on Science Magazine. So Lida Shing has become quite renowned for his habit recently of going to markets where they're selling Burmese Amber and finding cool stuff and picking it up. And then going through that and publishing on them this is where we got the baby snake it's where we got the 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 dinosaur tail all sorts of cool stuff burmese amber is about 99 million years old which puts it roughly in the middle of the cretaceous period this time lida and friends are presenting on 31 pieces of amber that have feathers preserved in them but these are not like modern bird feathers (laughs) <laughs> These aren't your dad's feathers. These aren't your dad's feathers. These are very long, what they call streamer-like or ribbon-like feathers. Ooh. Now, what's interesting is that these have been found preserved in sort of compression. So, you you know, the way that Archaeopteryx and, and such are preserved. Where they're flattened. With, they're flattened into the, the, the sediment. Streamer-like feathers have been found on ancient birds coming off the tail. Just these long streamers that, like, if you if you think of, like, a peacock, or if you're like me and you think of Articuno, <laughs> this long, uh, uh, and they have been determined, you know, uh, uh, thought to be display structures, uh, which is probably partially true, but they're hard to study in that form because they're flattened compressions in the dirt and you can't get a whole lot of information about them. Amber preserves things in beautiful three dimensions and it's wonderful. So... Modern day feathers have a very particular structure where the central. So if you th- if you think of like a, a fern where it's got a branch going up the center and then extra branches coming out the sides and then smaller branches coming out of those extra branches. That's basically how feathers are structured. 
Yeah. If you ever get a chance to pick up a bird feather, they have this central shaft in the middle and then branches that go off the sides. And then those little branches have little hooks like a comb. Little perfect hooks that just zip together. Oh, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful to watch how how perfectly constructed it is. Yeah. These aren't like that. (laughs) These ain't those. (laughs) These ain't those. Uh, That shaft in the middle is called the rachis. And the rachis is a hollow tube in modern bird feathers. These ribbon feathers, the rachis is a flattened half cylinder. Oh. It's not a tube. It is open and kind of flattened. The feather barbs are highly reduced, so it looks like this long ribbon. They call these RDFs, rachis-dominated feathers. Oh. They note that these would have stuck out very straight and rigid, so not windy like Articuno, but more... Peacock, you know, like a peacock's <laughs> tail feathers. Yeah, Real yeah. straight. And they are very long. They are very lightweight. And they are ridiculously thin. The rachis in these feathers can be about three micrometers thick. Wow. That is half the thickness of your average red blood cell. Wow. These are just insanely thin. Which, the authors suggest, uh, indicates that they are probably highly disposable. Mm -hmm. They're very long, but they're very lightweight. They're very rigid. They're super tiny. Display, you know, these could certainly be there for display. But the fact that they have found a bunch of them just lying around in amber, not attached to bird butts, Mm -hmm. suggests to them that they were losing them very easily. Like eyelashes. Like Like eyelashes. Or, their analogy, like the tails of lizards that drop their tails to get away from predators. Oh, interesting. So they're they're wondering if these are these long feathers that are like the length of the body of the animal. Predator comes after you, grabs one of those, pop it out and run away. Or Mm -hmm. fly away, if you are in fact a bird. So they're wondering if these were left in resin so commonly, either because they're, you know, they drop them off. Or because when your tail get your it gets caught in the resin and you just walk away mm-hmm. <laughs> and you leave it there stuck in the sap. Interesting. Yeah. So a whole new feather morphology and possible new use for feathers that we don't really see in in birds today. Hmm. hmm. Indeed. That's really interesting. It it the the design of the feather very much keeps bringing to mind Birds of Paradise, where it's just these these big fronds and and ribbons and loops coming off the bird yeah and very wondering, fancy very fancy very decorative and uh, my first idea when you said that they were disposable was the idea of them having having a, a suite of these on their body somewhere and they, they just fall off and regrow and fall off and, and it's just you know like like right. our hair where you're shedding your hair all the time but you're also growing it all the time so it never you don't go bald from the shedding unless you're balding but right <laughs> but the in, the idea of it being used like a lizard's tail as a as a decoy or distraction to pop off when attacked is really interesting. Yeah. More hmm. to come, I'm sure. Who know who else who knows what what Lita and and buddies have in their amber collection now that they found in the markets. Uh, I mean, I'm expecting the next one to be something grabbing one of these feathers off of one of these birds as the bird is <laughs> in the process of leaving all in one amber chunk is all in one just a 10 foot <laughs> chunk of amber with the velociraptor in it. <laughs> that's cool cool amber stuff well 
I would like to talk about some teeth. And in fact, I would like to talk about some very big teeth. Again. From a really big shark. You may have heard of it. It's called Megalodon. Who? Yeah, that one. This is an analysis of Megalodon's teeth that using recent techniques, you know, newer techniques that hints at potentially showing this shark to be warm-bodied, you know, warmer Ooh. than its environment, endothermic. Oh, exciting. Which is kind of a big deal. Now, this is preliminary research because it actually has not been published yet. It has been presented. Newman et al. presented this research at the American Geophysical Union uh, fall meeting in 2018, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. AGU. AGU. It's a big meeting. This is some of their first findings. They plan to do more along with this, which we'll go into. Cool. Now, the article we'll be linking to is by Kimberly M.S. Cartier in the EOS Earth and si Space Science News. So, brief background. Megalodon, for anyone who has not heard of it, all two of you, is <laughs> the largest shark we have yet to discover. Estimated to be between, at max size, 40 and 60 feet long. You know, that's getting up to 20 meters. They lived during the Miocene and Pliocene, 23 to 2.5 million years ago, and were basically across the entire planet, except for around Antarctica, as far as we found. But they were just everywhere. They dominated the ocean. They were probably the biggest predator during that time, or at least one of the big, like, it's a, it's a big deal shark. Big deal shark. Wait a minute. Are you saying it's extinct? It, it is. It was a big deal shark. Now, when this shark was around in the past tense. <laughs> <laughs> Stop ruining my childhood. <laughs> it's crushing dreams. <laughs> now, Megalodon, in this paper, you may notice, it, it might throw some people off, that it is Otutus Megalodon. Wait, really? <laughs> it's they O-Megalodon? O-Megalodon is huh. what they... Put it we as should in, explain why that's weird. Yeah. So Megalodon's taxonomic position has been argued and debated and switched and flipped multiple times, but usually between Cacaricles and Cacaridon. So the genus, the genus. Cacaricles, the, so the species would be Cacaricles Megalodon or, or Carcarius Megalodon. Yes. Megalodon being the species epithet, which is yes. what that is called. So those are the two main groups, basically either placing it with other megatooth sharks or with uh cacaridon and with the great white right. connecting it because for a, quite a while it was believed to potentially be an ancestor to our modern day great white because mm -hmm. they show many similarities in their tooth structure but there's been debates and it's flipped back and forth so for a long long time it was just sea megalodon because that could <laughs> you could be either one that encompassed both so if you didn't want to make a stand on which one it was you see megalodon and People could fill in whichever one they were agreeing with until it got decided. This one is putting it as O-Megalodon because some recent research has actually suggested that those megatooth sharks should be in Otutus, the genus Otutus. I don't know hmm. which of these is the correct one because no one has that final answer. But I've seen a number of papers when I went to look into this because I read that and I had like a double take. So there are multiple people using O-Megalodon, which is what it is here. We're going to call oh, it Megalodon. Megalodon. Because we're not doing taxonomy right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a young man's game. Yes, no. No, that is, this is, that is not a place, that is not a topic for the news. See <laughs> <laughs> your father's clades. <laughs> now, Megalodon, super famous, super interesting. One of the big, big questions is why did it go extinct? What caused this 
dominant predator to go extinct. And lots of potentials here. It disappeared just before we started seeing major glaciation. About 2 million years ago is when we start seeing glaciers start to take over and the, the Ice Age start. It disappeared just before that, so many people have connected it to that. One of the ideas here is that it could be due to body temperature. That might have been what killed it. It was often found in what were tropical waters, warm mm -hmm. waters. Right. If it was ectothermic, cold-blooded, getting its heat from the environment, and it was living in these warmer waters due to that to keep itself warm, as things cooled, it just may not have been able to adjust. That's right. It's the same reason reptiles tend to not do so well when things get cold. I mean, it's it's a right. that's a straightforward idea. It also could have been due to lack of food because of big size. You're going to need lots of food to keep up your energy. And if your food goes away because it gets cold. So there's lots of reasons. But they wanted to look at the body temperature. Mm -hmm. So to do that, they used a cool technique that is called clumped isotope thermometry. Oh, I like it. CIT. It's really interesting. So this is an isotopic study, which we've talked about before. You're looking at the concentration of isotopes, which are versions of atoms that have different weights. This technique was used to look at oxygen-18 and carbon-13 isotopes and how they gather within the carbon dioxide of the tooth enamel. Mm. Now, what I mean by that is that at different temperatures, these isotopes tend to clump, thus clumped isotope thermometry, tend to clump at differing concentrations within the carbon dioxide. At higher temperatures, they right. tend to clump at lower amounts because it's not energy efficient. It's not as stable. So low concentrations of these isotopes in the carbon dioxide means a higher body temperature. Now, the nice thing about this, the reason they used it, is it is not affected by the water temperature, is affected by body temperature. Oh, cool. And to get a benchmark for this, they used modern shark teeth from aquariums and regions where temperature ranges and histories were known. So that they were able to account for the water temperature and then the body temperature of the animals and do the isotope study on modern shark's teeth. This gave them their benchmark range as to what to compare Megalodon to. Fun fact, they said at this point of the study is where Megalodon size really came in handy because one Megalodon tooth provided enough enamel for the study. It took 15 to 20 modern shark's teeth to do, <laughs> to do the same stuff. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's handy. That's a lot of enamel. Now, the results that came back did indeed seem to suggest that Megalodon's body temperature was warmer than one would expect from an cold-blooded, a ectothermic animal. Ooh. So it seems to have been keeping a warmer body temperature, not just warmer, but even warmer than modern great whites who also keep their body temperature warmer through their physiology of how their blood flows. So right. it yeah. seems that not only was it warm, it was warmer than our big famous warm-blooded shark today. <laughs> so great, yeah, great white sharks keep their body temperature elevated. They're yes. not properly cold-blooded. They got a little bit of that warm-blooded tendency. So it's not totally surprising, I suppose, that Megalodon could do the same thing. Absolutely. It, basically, the way that a shark manages it is... As they swim, your muscles create heat from friction. They send cold blood to the hot muscles and then send the hot blood from the muscles to the rest of the body, which means if they stop swimming, they cool down. So they right. have to keep moving. So if it was doing something like that, it seems Megalodon was somehow staying warm. So this is an interesting finding. Now, this is the first part of the finding. They want to do more isotope studies to try to determine what was it eating, what was the water like, what was the salinity, what was the water temperature. Right. So they have more studies to do, but this, that's... 
that's telling of this predator. That's that gives us some interesting information. Yeah. I also wonder how much there is a process and we'll talk about this in a little bit (laughs) called gigantothermy. Yes. Which is the notion that a large body loses heat more slowly. Mm -hmm. So large, especially in the ocean, large bodied animals tend to be able to stay relatively warm. Sea turtles do this. Yeah. Giant sea turtles tend to be pretty warm just because they retain heat. Yeah. Same same reason that really skinny people are always bundled up in the winter. Yeah. But you'll see like those big guys with, you know, tank tops on walking around when it's cold out. Big bodies retain heat. It's it's certain things like gravity and heat dispersal does not scale, you know? Yes. Just because you're the same shape, but you're a bigger shark, you insulate yourself. So there's yeah. there's... Which, if it is doing this, one of the things that this causes for the great whites, so that everyone knows, this is why they go after seals and high-energy animals and have to eat very often because they are using lots of energy to stay warm in the cold waters where they live, which could mean that Megalodon was also a very active hunter. (laughs) See, I have an image in my head of, you know, those famous shots of the great whites coming up out of the water, grabbing the seals. I, I want Megalodon doing that, but with, like, walruses. Yes. Just, boosh. I mean, with, they, they'd be doing it with killer whale size. <laughs> so, I mean, they'd be taking orcas. It's, yeah, no, it's awesome. Very cool. So warm Megalodons. Hmm. Interesting. We'll, we'll keep, uh, we'll, we'll be keeping eyes on this story as it progresses. <laughs> Speaking of warm things, and while, uh, you know, I figure to mix it up, my next bit of news is about feathers maybe oh okay the plot thickens oh it's it's pretty thick (laughs) or should i say the plumage the (laughs) now i got got a dirty look for that one this (laughs) (laughs) i disagree (laughs) this bit of news i i we come at it with some tentative we're gonna be careful. We we read this n- this news down our nose. We read <laughs> well. We we read it with our hands stroking yeah. our chins. Hmm. 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 This is news that has been taken the internet by storm about feathers on pterosaurs. Now, if this is true, <laughs> calm down. This, now everybody, <laughs> calm, calm down. down. Now, <laughs> I sh- sh- it's okay. Okay, we're going to get to it. <laughs> if this is true, this is super cool. It's a big deal. But let's break it down. This is research published by Zixiao Yang et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And I will link to an article by Anthony King on The Scientist. Okay, some background. Pterosaurs are the flying reptiles of the Mesozoic. Mm-hmm. Pter- Pteranodon, Pterodactylus, Quetzalcoatlus, etc. Pterosaurs are the sister group, commonly thought of to be the sister group to dinosaurs, which is to say they are not dinosaurs, but they are very closely related to dinosaurs. They share a close common ancestor. Yeah. Dinosaurs had feathers. You may have heard, if you've been on the internet in the last 20 years, (laughs) that we know some dinosaurs had feathers, we know some dinosaurs probably didn't have feathers, and then we like to argue about all the other ones, whether (laughs) or not they had feathers. Part of the reason we argue about it is because we're not yet sure where along the evolution of dinosaurs' feathers first appeared. Pterosaurs are known to be fuzzy. It is well known that pterosaurs were covered in these sort of furry bits, this furry integument, that are called pycnofibers. Not fur, 
not feathers, their own thing. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, and it has made some people wonder if that kind of integument is just an, you know, a thing that was goes way, way back in this family tree. Because if pterosaurs have it and dinosaurs have it and they're made of the same thing, that would suggest that their shared ancestors have mm -hmm. And if their shared ancestors were fuzzy, then that suggests that all pterosaurs and all dinosaurs descended from fuzzy ancestors. Mm -hmm. But it's also possible that they evolved it independently. Yeah. Pterosaurs were fuzzy. Dinosaurs were fuzzy. Mammals were fuzzy. Tarantulas were fuzzy. Sure. Okay. So here's the study. Two... Pterosaurs. These are pterosaurs of a group called the Anurognathids, which are these little, like, bat-like, short-faced, they're adorable. Little pterosaurs. These are from the very end of the Jurassic period in China, around 160 million years ago. Size of a pigeon. Uh, they are nearly complete specimens, which is really nice. The researchers examined them with microscopic imaging and spectroscopic imaging to examine the covering on their bodies because they're preserved and they well enough to show these soft tissue features. They found over much of the body, uh, you know, the head, the torso, the legs, the tails, those normal sort of furry pycnofibers, but they also found three other morphologies, so three other shapes that these fibers came in, some of which branch in a way that is highly reminiscent of feathers. They even, uh, with spectroscopic analysis, found that they have a chemical signature that is similar to the signature of feathers. Mm. They suggest that what they are seeing on these pterosaurs are feathers. This suggests a couple things. First of all, endothermy for pterosaurs, which is something that has been discussed, because if mm -hmm. you have a body covering, it's to hold your heat in. Warm-bloodedness, cool. But... If these are feathers, and if they are the same kinds of feathers that dinosaurs have, that we see on birds, that we see on dromaeosaurs, that strongly suggests that this is a feature that evolved way back in those early ancestors, which would suggest that the default state of a dinosaur and of a pterosaur is to be feathered. Yeah. But, and... It is a big butt. We like those sometimes. Well, big, uh, <laughs> I always tell the truth. There is a lot of arguing about this. Now, some people have pointed out that perhaps these are not the same kinds of feathers, that maybe it's a similar structure, that it's convergent, right? That it could just be that they happen to have taken this branching shape, but they're not necessarily the same structure which could mean that they were evolved independently. Yes. That these are not true feathers. That, 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 that is just a good design for body covering. Right. Or something that archosaurs are just prone to develop. Yeah. For some interesting reason. Others have argued that these might not be truly branching structures at all, that the authors might be mistaking the breaking down or fraying mm. of these structures as branching. Uh, there have been some complaints about the images, that the images in the paper aren't as good as people would have preferred. They're not as clear. And one pterosaur expert, Dave Unwin, has been quoted all over the internet as arguing that these are not even pycnofibers. <laughs> that what they are seeing, uh, he argues that they there's a good chance they are mistaking wing membrane fibers. Oh. So that's part of the structure of the wing for 
these this furry coating. Needless to say, the authors of the study do not agree with that. Mm-hmm. But it's all in in the cases of extraordinary claims, it is very <laughs> important to to put forth as much of the scientific discussion as possible. Either way, we know pterosaurs had these fibrous coverings. Yes. It appears they had multiple morphologies, different types of coverings, similar to how birds and dinosaurs had different kinds of feathers. Mm-hmm. It might suggest that fluffiness is something that is either ancestral for these archosaurs or just something archosaurs are really good at doing for some reason. And it might just be that all dinosaurs and all pterosaurs are ancestrally feathered. Which is big. Which is pretty dang interesting. Which obviously leads us to the true big question of if this is so common in archosaurs, where's my fuzzy crocodile? Apparently... Crocs are just not good enough. They they are not the fashionable side of the fan family. Not. <laughs> <They're> not. <laughs> they, they <are laughs> That's fascinating. It it is one of those moments where it's it's like the, the highly loaded finding of like this would really change how we would potentially be looking at every single dinosaur. I mean, because now. Instead of it being which dinosaurs are and aren't feathered, it's which dinosaurs lost feathers. Right. Which, honestly, wouldn't be super surprising. No. Like, it's already... I, I, me, over here, I will admit to favoring the thought that feathers or something very feather-like is probably ancestral for dinosaurs. Yeah. So it's not a huge surprise, but it would be interesting if that particular structure, that feathers goes all the way back well to me it, it, it could very easily make sense that the dinosaurs we see without feathers are the equivalent of our elephants elephants yeah. are still fuzzy just not many spots right elephants dolphins naked mole rats yeah like they humans s- they still have hair you, you might have it to where you know triceratops only has fuzz every it looks like a pig where it's just little hairs popping out here and there every now you know like like a warthog this is very interesting it also makes me wonder how if they did have feathers for the pterosaurs this immediately brings up the question was it having anything to do with their flying like yeah that's this is a big study (laughs) it it could the the implications could be very cool they but we'll see we'll see what comes of it cool i'm excited to hear more Well, that's all the news, which means it is time to move on to our discussion about the best aquatic reptiles ever, the Mosasaurs. Yeah. Let's take a trip back to the Devonian period. At this time, fish, aquatic vertebrates, the only vertebrates back then, gave rise to land-dwelling descendants. These land-dwelling descendants took over the world. Tetrapods, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, birds. But several times, these animals have given rise to lineages that have returned to the water. Reptiles have returned to the water many times. There are obviously uh, aquatic turtles. There have their crocs are semi-aquatic today. Mm-hmm. Adept swimmers. There have been fully aquatic crocodilliforms. Yeah. 
as we've discussed, episode two, there are sea snakes, there have been a number of aquatic and semi-aquatic lizards, there were all sorts of crazy experiments back in the Triassic, which we discussed in episode 15 a little bit. But during the Mesozoic era, there are three big, famous groups of Mesozoic marine reptiles. Three dynasties. Three dynasties. The Mosasaurs are one of them, but I want to go over the other two so that we can get a sense of why Mosasaurs are unique and why they are different and why they are special. So let's talk about some of the lesser marine reptiles. The three are the Ichthyosaurs, the Plesiosaurs, and the Mosasaurs. Now, Ichthyosaurs, if you... Probably the most common marine reptiles depicted in Mesozoic art. So Mesozoic, the age of reptiles, the age of dinosaurs. In the oceans for much of that era, the, the, the waters were dominated in part by Ichthyosaurs. These are the fish reptiles. Here's a note about et- etymology. Soar, right? Dinosaur, Ichthyosaur, Mosasaur. Soars is often translated as lizard, mm-hmm. which annoys me <laughs> because dinosaurs are not lizards and ichthyosaurs are not lizards and plesiosaurs no. are not lizards. Reptile, saurian, whatever. Ichthyosaurs are the fish reptiles is what the yep. name means. They're called that because they look a lot like fish. They are fully aquatic. Their arms and legs have evolved into flippers, proper paddles for swimming. They are carnivorous. They come in a range of sizes from rather small to ridiculously large. Just, yeah, gargantuan. And the most famous and generally common of ichthyosaurs were shaped like dolphins. Mm -hmm. They had that dolphin-like body profile, uh, oftentimes with a dorsal fin. Mm -hmm. Flippers up front, smaller flippers in the back. Many ichthyosaurs are known for having these long, slender snouts. Kind of like a dolphin or like a like a, 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 a sailfish. Like gars. Like gars, yep. They tended to have large eyes. They had these wonderful vertical tails, right? Like a shark tail. Yep. Upper lobe, lower lobe for swimming. Flippers up front for steering while they swam around. Very common, uh, very successful. They appear in the Triassic period more than 200 million years ago. Common throughout the Triassic, the Jurassic, into the Cretaceous but they do not make it to the end of the Cretaceous. Which is so interesting. Ichthyosaurs are uh, are extinct by around the beginning of the late Cretaceous. So, you know, 100 million years ago or so is the end of the reign of the Ichthyosaur. The second group are the Plesiosaurs. Also fully aquatic, also with flippers, also carnivorous, also ranged in size from rather small to stupid large. Yeah. And when we say uh, whale size, big whale sized, yeah. not blue whale sized. Whale-sized. Plesiosaurs are not fish-shaped. They're more kind of sea turtle-shaped. They don't have shells. They're not really much... They're not shaped like much that we know today. (laughs) No, and and because they swam in a very different way. Mm -hmm. So they had these broad bodies, very rigid bodies, right? They weren't like a fit, like wiggly like a fish. Short tails... Yeah. Because they were not swimming with their tails. Their flippers, all four flippers were big and long and powerful because that's what they were swimming with. Like a sea turtle, they're swimming with their flippers. That's where their most of their propulsion's coming yeah. from. So if you picture a sea turtle with those two big front long flippers that they, they fly through the water with, you know, they flap mm-hmm. those. They had four of those. All four were big and long, and they had that same big bulky body. So yep. it, it, twice the turtle. 
two times the turn. Well, and, and, and they're so weird that there's been a lot of discussion on how they used those flippers. And we talked about that mm-hmm. in one of our news bits. We no longer have four flipper propulsion today. We don't have animals swimming around with four fins. Nope. Now, plesiosaurs typically come in two general shape types. The famous plesiosaur form, which mm-hmm. is your Loch Ness monster form, which is your long neck with a tiny head on the end of it. Elasmosaurus, yeah. uh, the, the famous example of this plesiosaurus. And then the better form. And then the other <laughs> <laughs> the other form, which are the pliosaurs, or it, it's not, it might not be restricted to one particular group. It may be multiple times, but... The pliosaur shape, which is short necks and big heads. Big heads. Lyopleurodon, Chronosaurus. These are sort of whale-shaped, but swimming with four flippers Mm -hmm. instead of with their tails. Plesiosaurs also show up in the Triassic. Also are common through the Triassic-Jurassic, but they hold on all the way through the Cretaceous. Plesiosaurs are around from 200 plus million years ago all the way up to 66 at the end of the Cretaceous. They said, Ichthyosaurs, we will carry on your legacy. We will carry this into the future. And then then (laughs) whales happened. (laughs) Finally, the third group, the Mosasaurs. Mosasaurs are different. Uh, Which brings me to reason number one why Mosasaurs are the best aquatic reptiles in history. They're basically sea serpents. They really are. So... Like the other two, they're fully aquatic. Flippers, carnivores, range from very small to insanely large. Huge. But Mosasaur... Now, I, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, remember Jurassic World? Yeah. And it's not as good sequel? <laughs> that aquatic reptile is a Mosasaur. Or at the very least, it's the Jurassic World approximation <laughs> of a Mosasaur. <laughs> it's actually mostly pretty good in terms of general shape. It's just Monster Island size. It is very large, uh, and it's missing some of the best parts that a mosasaur should have. But I get ahead of myself. Mosasaurs are long, sort of serpentine uh, in some ways, and they have very lizard-like heads. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you think of a monitor lizard, Komodo dragon, that's the kind of head you're looking at. Because mosasaurs, the sore is authentic in mosasaur. These are lizards. More on that later. (laughs) Their skulls are very large. Uh, The skulls tend to make up at least 10% of the length of the body is in their skull, which is like crocodile proportions. I was about to say, if you glanced at one of these, they they do highly resemble the marine crocodiles in Mm -hmm. large heads, long bodies, long tails. But when you take a closer look, more lizardy. Yes, more better. Their skulls are <laughs> yeah. very flexible, right? So a lot of t- a lot of ichthyosaurs had small skulls, a lot of plesiosaurs had small skulls. Mosasaurs had these big flexible skulls. Flexible is another flexible word for flimsy. Jaws. Oh no. <laughs> we'll get to the we'll get to those jaws. And as Will pointed out, very long tails. Uh the tails in, in Mosasaurs have a habit of making up a good fifty percent of the body length. Yes. Just these real long tails. Uh, they also, they're, they're flattened side to side. So if you think of a crocodile tail mm-hmm. or a sea snake tail, uh, laterally compressed so that as they wave it back and forth, they're catching the, the water. Something else we'll get into a little bit later is that they also had vertical tails for yeah, swimming. They, yeah, they did. And their flippers up front, uh, like an ichthyosaur, like a shark, are up there for, you know, 
aiding with swimming for, for steering around. What's real interesting about mosasaurs in comparison to the other two is that mosasaurs appear in the late Cretaceous. Yeah. Mosasaurs do not show up in the fossil record until around 90 million years ago, which means that, and, and they last throughout the late Cretaceous and then they're gone at the, the, the end of the Cretaceous. So mosasaurs were only around for like 25 million years or mm -hmm. so. For comparison, whales have been around for a good 40 million. Yeah. Plesiosaurs had a good 150. So mosasaurs are very... They, they, they were they were uh, uh they they burned bright as i was say they were a bright candle <laughs> they were a bright candle they burned bright but fast so now let's talk a bit more about what what makes mosasaurs in particular very special so we're zooming in on the late cretaceous get those ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs out of the way those are the subject of another episode if you request it <laughs> listeners let's talk a bit more about what makes a mosasaur this brings me to reason number two why mosasaurs are the best aquatic animals of all time. They are squamates. What's a squamate? Squamata is the order of reptiles that includes lizards and snakes, which, as we all know, are the best reptiles around. What, what's, what's the squamata? Nothing. What's the squamata with you? What's the squamata <laughs> with you? Ah, Hakuna squamata. <laughs> now, this means that mosasaurs are lizards. True lizards, which means that I can say one of my favorite sentences in the entire world. Mosasaurs are lizards that are convergent with whales. Yep. I love it. There is some debate on where exactly mosasaurs fit in the lizard family tree. What? Descent in squamate taxonomy? Descent about the descent of mosasaurs. This is unheard of. In general... It is agreed that they fall within the area of the Varanoids on the sort of ang within the anguimorph section of the tree. So that would mean that they are close to monitor lizards. The best. They have a lot of physical. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're pretty good. <laughs> they have a lot of physical similarities with monitor lizards. These are your Gowanas, your Nile monitor, your Komodo dragon, things like that. Uh, this also would put them close to. The Gila Dermatids. Oh, So this yeah. is your beaded lizard and your Gila monster. Um, both of those groups, incidentally, are venomous. Famously dun, venomous. Dun, dun. And, and here's a reason number 2B. Uh, this also means that mosasaurs are presumably very close relatives of snakes. Yep. Now, there has been a lot of back and forth sort of... Uh, a lot of older literature will actually refer to them as varanid lizards. That these are monitors uh, but I, that's not in really the consensus anymore there has been some discussion in the past about are these snakes are they are they closest to snakes this has kind of gone back and forth but generally they are in this corner of the the lizard family tree monitors beaded lizards snakes lanthanotis they also have a close extinct relatives in a group of lizards called the dolichosaurs <laughs> this is another group that has kind of bounced around a bit i like that name delicosaurs delicosaurs uh, whatever you want i like delicosaurs these are lizards with long bodies reduced limbs so small limbs small heads that were you know up to about a meter long or so okay so, right three four feet but aquatic these were aquatic lizards so they would have been i i i picture sort of a small headed long-bodied marine iguana yeah right not 
fully aquatic, but you know, swimming around, kicking mm-hmm. their, paddling their feet. W- wiggling. A couple of cool things that this suggests, incidentally, if you're uh, knowledgeable about these sorts of things, you may have picked up on the fact that one of the traits that is shared by varanids, helidromatids, and snakes is that they all have forked tongues that they it's use true. for sensing things. And there was actually a study that was that, that looked at the uh, the skull morphology of mosasaurs and suggested that not only does their family history indicate that they should have had forked tongues, but the morphology of their mouth is also consistent with forked tongues. Ooh, do they, do they find evidence for like the Jacobson's organ or the, like the groove? Within, yeah, if I remember correctly, it was a pair of, I think it was a pair of holes within the mouth that Ooh. are correlated with where the tongue is used for sensory. So it might be uh, related to the Jacobson's organ. Maybe. I'd have that's, to go check. That's cool. That's cool. So they suggested that similar to what the modern lizards have, it was possibly that they could have had a that the back part of the tongue was for food manipulation and the front part was for sensing in the water. And if you're wondering, would that still be useful in an aquatic lizard? Sea snakes do it. Yeah. So, yes. So, 2C, uh, they're flicking their tongues out. How disturbing. Right. Sea serpents. With, like, some some of the skulls on these are, like, as big as your torso. Yeah, they and are. And then th- this... this Big, giant, Twizzler-sized. Like a dragon. <laughs> just, just It literally would look like, and I'm picturing it, the monitor and and Komodo dragon tongue, where when it comes out, you can see it, like, spread out sideways, because, like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not small enough to be quick and, and lightning anymore. Now it's this big lapping. <laughs> now, sea snakes... Oh. As far as I'm aware, sea snakes typically protrude the tongues out a little bit. So they're not doing like the whole flicky flicky thing that, yeah. that a lot of snakes do. But yeah, no, they're blip, blip. they're doing little bleps, little little hunting bleps. Just dabbing dabbing the surface, just just a yes. little bit. This incidentally was one of the things that Jurassic World got wrong. Uh, they gave it like a normal tongue. Yeah, they did. They give lots of stuff to tongues that really shouldn't have tongues. Like movies do that all the time. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they do it with Crocs and stuff as well. Another thing that is a squamate thing that I'm going to throw out there because it's fun. Uh, one of the shared traits of squamates is uh, hemipenis. Hey, yeah. Lizards and snakes have two penises, one on either side, one connected to each of the testes that can both extrude out of the cloaca and presumably access a mate on either side of the body. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't think at the same time, but, you know, you're flexible. <laughs> you can have a chain uh, link. <laughs> so this was a giant sea serpent with a forked tongue and two and, and, organs. And forked penis. And a for- <laughs> not, not forked. You're thinking of kangaroos. Yes, this, this is true. This had two of them. This had two. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, moving on quickly. The early evolution of mosasaurs begins, it seems with a group of aquatic lizards called the Agialosaurs. So these were semi-aquatic lizards, uh, similar to I described with the Dilichosaurs. Again, you can kind of think marine iguanas for something getting there. Long bodies, small heads, long tails. Uh, feet, though. Yeah. No, not flippers. These were, they had feet. They had what, what, they, what the, the experts call the plesiopedal condition. That is the ancestral feet. 
Interesting. Asialosaurs were around uh, for during the Cenomanian, which is a subdivision of the Cretaceous, that was about 100 to 95 million years ago, right? Right. right in the beginning of the late Cretaceous. Asialosaurs are generally considered to be either the sister group to Mosasaurs or the group that gave rise to Mosasaurs. So either very close relatives or the the some of the ancestors. Right. And if they are the ancestors as happened with synapsids and this we discussed this with sharks that also makes them paraphyletic <laughs> so they're not a true group they're more of a an evolutionary grade of yeah. this group but sure agialosaurs uh potentially where mosasaurs came from as mosasaurs arose they evolved a number of specialized aquatic habits aquatic features that the agialosaurs did not necessarily have so obviously, you know, the, the long bodies, the long tails, that's already in place. The two big features that set mosasaur, sort of aquatic, fully aquatic mosasaurs aside from their semi-aquatic ancestors are what are called, and I like these words, the hydropelvic condition and the hydropedal condition. Ooh, those are good words. Hydropelvic, water, pelvis, is a condition of the pelvis where the it, essentially, the pelvis is no longer attached to the vertebrae. Mm-hmm. We, we have seen this before. We sure have. I do believe the whales yes. have a similar thing. Hydropedal, pedal is feet. Like if you go to the uh, pe- podiatrist, pedi- right, podiatrist is feet, pediatrician is children. Yes. The pediatrist is children's feet now. <laughs> Hydropedal means paddle-shaped hands. Yeah. This is actually really interesting because if you look at the agialosaurs, the early condition is to have long arms and short hands. But if you look at the fully aquatic mosasaurs, similar to what you see in whales and what you see in plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, mm-hmm. the arm itself is very short and the hand or the foot is very extended. Yeah, you, you bring your you bring your joints close to the body where they can be muscular and move a big long oar yes and the oar is not only are the bones elongated they tend to grow extra phalanges i know right so if you in your finger you have two joints along your finger because you have three bones in each of your fingers except for your thumb your thumb is weird (laughs) aquatic animals like mosasaurs tend to get lots of phalanges and they just make this chain that goes out into this ore, this paddle. Copy, paste, copy, copy. Paste, yep, copy, that, and paste. that's genetically what's happening. Yeah. It's... What's really intriguing about mosasaurs is it is discussed. We do not know for sure if the fully if these fully aquatic features arose more than once Ooh. in mosasaur. It has been now. There's some evidence that at least part of it is monophyletic, which is to say it the that the evolution of that feature happened once. And all the Mosasaurs inherited it. Mm -hmm. But there's been some evidence put forth that there may have been independent origins of these fully aquatic adaptations. That more than one branch of either the Agialosaurs or whatever the very earliest Mosasauroids were gave rise to fully aquatic descendants. That's cool. Which is pretty cool. That's As far as I know, that is not something that has come up with like whales or or other marine uh, uh vertebrate marine tetrapods that i know of yeah no that that would be very unique especially for them the, to then go on and be successful like 
you know, it, it's not uncommon to see in lineages where you have a couple of groups attempt similar things and then one takes off. You know, right. But if multiple all evolved, you know, c- convergently evolved the same sort of features and then all went on to be in the ocean together, that's interesting. That would be yeah. very interesting and bizarre. Especially since they then seem to form one group. Yeah. They're still very similar, which is pretty cool. Neat. Speaking of going on to become successful, I present the third reason why Mosasaurs are the greatest aquatic animals of all time. Aside possibly from sea snakes. Sea snakes are pretty cool. Mosasaurs are pretty good. <laughs> In a very short period of time, Mosasaurs achieved, and I'm going to use Mike Everhart's words here, global domination. Intimidating. Yeah, well, these are intimidating creatures. <laughs> Mosasaurs are found everywhere. The first Mosasaur discovered was Mosasaurus Hoffmanii, eventually called Mosasaurus Hoffmanii, uh, found in the Netherlands back in the 1700s. Mosasaurs are famous from the central uh, United States, Kansas, South Dakota, places like that, because back during the late Cretaceous, as we've discussed previously, High sea levels and continental weirdness led to a band of water cutting across North America. From the Arctic down to the Gulf of Mexico, the central portion of North America was covered in a shallow sea, the Western Interior Seaway. Mosasaurs are some of the most famous fossils found from there, but these are not the only places they are found. (laughs) Mosasaur fossils have been found across North America, Canada, U.S., Mexico— Several countries in South America. They've been found in many different parts of Europe. They've been found in both North and South Africa. They've been found in the Middle East. They've been found across Asia. They've been found in Australia and New Zealand. They have been found in Vega Island on the Antarctic Peninsula. Mosasaurs went everywhere. The earliest mosasaurs seem to arise around 90 million years or so. In the past, uh, around the time the Agialosaurs are kind of, you know, disappearing or, or waning in their fossil record, or at least they're not around for much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Mosasaurs show up around 90 million years ago in their earliest iteration in an age called the Turonian uh, is when this is when we see sort of the big famous three. There are three Mosasaur names you'll hear coming out of the Western Interior Seaway. And they come conveniently in three different sizes. (laughs) Clydastes is the smallest one. Uh, What are the the venti? What are the Starbucks? Oh, I I don't drink coffee. Neither of us drink coffee. (laughs) Clydastes is a, as mosasaurs go, fairly small, three to four meters. So, you know, 10 feet, 10 feet, 12 feet. Which, I mean, that's decent shark size. Yeah. Clydastes, at least in this time period, and then... Survives throughout the rest of the Cretaceous. Very common, very well known. The second famous one from the early part of the Mosasaur reign is a Mosasaur called Platycarpus, which comes in four to six meters or so. So we're looking at, you know, 15 feet, getting on to- closer to 20 feet. That's great white sized. Platycarpus has a, is really, it's got this short skull, and it is very well known for at least one absolutely spectacular specimen. That preserves all sorts of cool soft tissue. More on that after the break. And the third famous mosasaur from the earliest portion of mosasaur times 
uh, during uh, the, the early, late Cretaceous, is a mosasaur you may have heard of called Tylosaurus. Yep. At this time, Tylosaurus gets up to seven or eight meters long. So now we're talking 25 feet. That is in a range that today is really only reached by whales and like two sharks. Yep. Yep. That's that. That's an orca mosasaur. Yes. <laughs> Interesting to note, by this time, there don't appear to be any ichthyosaurs left. They ate them all. Whether or not, <laughs> <laughs> there can be only one and also all these other marine reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> I ate it. It was just like Pac-Man, but with more teeth. (laughs) Whether or not the decline of the ichthyosaurs and the rise of the mosasaurs are related to each other is not known for certain. But I like to think that the best marine reptile... You know how in Dragon Ball Z, every time they introduce a new character, they have to show that it's strong by having him defeat the last strongest one? Yeah. Like when Trunks first shows up, the first thing he does is destroy Frieza. Yeah. That's basically, it was like ichthyosaurs were dominant for a while. (laughs) And then Mosasaurs showed up and they were like, hey, get out of the way. The androids are coming. We've got some important. The Mosasaurs showed up and ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs were there. Who's this guy? And they destroy ichthyosaurs. The plesiosaurs are like, whoa, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, whoa, buddy. All right. We're just, yeah, eat all the ammonites you want, all right? We're going to, we'll back off. By the Santonian, another subdivision of the Cretaceous, around 85 million years, uh, you know, 80, 85 uh, million years and a little bit after that, within 10 million years of their appearance, less even, Mosasaurs have achieved a worldwide distribution. Within several million years, it seems, Mosasaurs went from humble beginnings to everywhere and they come on this really cool diversity so over the course of the late cretaceous uh, in terms of size a standard mosasaur it is not uncommon to find mosasaurs that are five six seven eight meters right 20 to 30 feet so we're in great white orca territory yep now notably we're also there's also plesiosaurs and there's giant fish so we'll talk a bit more about who they were living with later on Mm mm-hmm But they just keep getting bigger. Yeah, they do. By the end of the Cretaceous, three genera of Mosasaurs have produced species that are extremely large. Mosasaurus, Hainosaurus, and the later species of Tylosaurus are all estimated to have achieved at least 15 meters in length. So we're up in the vicinity of 50 feet. Yeah. Like, sperm whales are the only toothy things yeah that get bigger than that nowadays <laughs> that's so that's these are huge. these are among the largest aquatic predators ever to have lived now in fairness to the other creatures ichthyosaurs there are ichthyosaurs that got this big mm-hmm. there are plesiosaurs mm-hmm. that got this big but this isn't their episode so they can back off yeah you get your turn <laughs> there is one specimen of mosasaurus from russia whose head has been estimated to have been 1.7 meters long. That's about five and a half feet. Wow. That is an aquatic predator with a head almost as long as me. Yeah. That is that is is a head that could snap up a toddler without mm-hmm. noticing it. Yep. That's crazy. 
Toward the end of the Cretaceous, they also diversified in body shapes and habitats. So there are a few mosasaurs that look intriguingly like ichthyosaurs. So, for example, there's a genus called Plotosaurus, which has this sort of narrower profile, narrower flippers, larger tail fins, larger eyes, and it looks rather convergent with an ichthyosaur, which is to say convergent with, you know, dolphins and stuff, too. Uh, It's also it's been suggested it may have been a faster swimmer. It's like a body snatcher mosasaur. They came in, replaced the ichthyosaur. No, what, guys? I've been here the whole time. <laughs> this is how they, they buddy up to the plesiosaurs. Yeah. Hey, buddy. Hey, Old remember pal from, us? From last time we hung out. You remember. We, I, I don't have do to because you, you do. Don't you remember the Triassic? <laughs> Tell me about it. You, <laughs> you and I remember the Triassic period very differently. <laughs> Let, let's reminisce. You start. <laughs> <laughs> they also came in different... So most mosasaurs... Are known right. You're in the the Western Interior Seaway. Mosasaur fossils are found near the shore. Mosasaur fossils are found out in the open ocean. There are some mosasaur remains from. Will's very excited. I can see it. Freshwater deposits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is, uh, in particular, there is a genus called uh, Pannoniosaurus, which grew to about six meters. So this is a twenty foot creature. This you know, saltwater crocodile sized, found in freshwater deposits in Hungary. Uh, it also bears the chemical signature of a creature that spent most of its life in freshwater. And it is notable for having a croc-like head. <gasps> so I at least like to imagine it kind of popping its its face up That's... above the water, maybe hunting things nearby. Now, it has also been uh, pointed out that it, it's high, it's limbs, very little of the limbs are preserved, mm-hmm. but it may have had limbs more like earlier mosasauroids. Oh. So it might not have had the full flipper thing going on. That that actually would kind of make sense for freshwater to be able yep. to push around and, and crawl a bit over shallow areas and stuff. Uh, that's, yeah. oh, that's so the, cool. The thought of a shoreline hunting croc-like mosasaur. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know if that's what it was doing. It, I got the picture of those shoreline. catfish that were hunting the pigeons. <laughs> yes! Yes! That's what I picked. Just this big, long tail just just propelling it and thrashing. Oh, man. <laughs> this is one that watched the other mosasaurs destroy the ichthyosaurs <laughs> and then turn to the freshwater and saw crocodilomorphs and went... Okay. <laughs> Challenge accepted. My turn. <laughs> Speaking of which, there was also a really interesting variety of teeth in mosasaurs, but more on that in a bit. Mosasaurs reached uh, by the end of the Cretaceous, that the longer the Cretaceous goes on, the more of this cool diversity we seem to see. Different body shapes, different diets, really big sizes, and then they go extinct. Man, I totally would have di- diverted that asteroid if I. <laughs> that... It's, and then this wasn't this wasn't a case of a group that was like like the ichthyosaurs dwindled away or or, or whatever happened to them. Mosasaurs appear to have been like a lot of like cr- Cretaceous organisms at their peak, on the rise even, and then they went extinct. Now, interestingly enough, we have already done an episode about the extinction of the mosasaurs. It yeah. was episode five, because <laughs> the same thing that happened to the mosasaurs is what happened to almost all of the dinosaurs. 
and all of the pterosaurs and almost all of everything else and when a toad is struck by lightning and when it's <laughs> yes <laughs> well, do you know what happens to a mosasaur when the earth is struck by a, 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 a an asteroid same thing that happens to everything else <laughs> oh man that joke is that that reference is older than a lot of our listeners now, <laughs> now over the years we have been able to learn a lot of really cool stuff about the lifestyles and biologies of mosasaurs which we will discuss for the rest of the episode in a moment To start off this next section, I would like to present the fourth reason why mosasaurs are the greatest aquatic animals of all time. (gasps) They were dominant ocean predators. Certainly not the only dominant ocean predators, but the best ones. (laughs) As mentioned, mosasaurs lived in open ocean habitats, shallow seas, near shore habitats, and even, it seems, freshwater particularly in places like the western interior seaway so so the western interior seaway is known very well so i'm going to name a few examples from there and a lot of the specific examples i'm going to be mentioning come from the western interior seaway just because the the fossil deposits are so good Uh, kansas is famous for so many of these really great stuff well it helps when you take a huge area of seafloor and then conveniently raise it up and let it dry out and then leave it in the great plains yes (laughs) no mountains not a ton of trees what if we put some badlands right here yep that's it's really pretty ideal because if you leave it underwater then we can't get to it (laughs) if you bring it too far up it gets eroded away you put trees all over it they turn it into soil trees Trees. thanks Allie. in their environments mosasaurs lived alongside things like fish and sharks sea turtles, plesiosaurs. Some famous examples uh, from the Western Interior Seaway, there is the famous fish Xyphactinus. Yes. Uh, which is described as a voracious predator, but I, I think it's just been found <laughs> with a lot of evidence of predation on stuff. <laughs> that just that just meant it died while eating really often. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just eating all the time. Like <laughs> that may just mean it was a fish. bad eater. Maybe. Chew! Chew! <laughs> no wonder you're extinct. Zephactinus grew to, you know, this is a five meter fish. This is a nearly 20 foot predatory mm-hmm. fish. I guess most fish are predatory. There is also yes. the famous Ginsu shark. Yeah. Cretoxyrhina. Did you mention that one in a... We mentioned Ginsu sharks, in, in sharks briefly. Briefly. Cool, cool. Episode 48. They were also great white shark sized. There is the famous Tychotus. Uh, a, a shark that was apparently adapted for crunching clams. Yeah. Pretty cool. Also along the Western Interior Seaway and other similar habitats for mosasaurs, pterosaurs flew overhead. Pterosaurs are often found in marine deposits. Birds, Cretaceous birds, as we discussed in episode 37, lots of birds around these areas. Occasionally, dinosaur remains are found in the marine deposits. There's even, to my understanding, I believe there is at least one possible case of mosasaur bite marks on a dinosaur. There's probably a carcass that washed yes. out. 
And of course, clams and brachiopods and, and corals and all sorts of cool uh, oceanic invertebrates. And some of the Mesozoic favorites, like the ammonites, the coil-shelled cephalopods, and bolemnites, the boy-shaped cephalopods. Oh, those are both so cool. More on those in episode 16. So I talked about those jaws. Let's talk a little bit about what these mosasaurs were doing with their teeth. Teethers. Mosasaur jaws and teeth were real good for grabbing stuff. So unlike a lot of animals that have fairly rigid jaws, uh, probably like the iconic example of a rigid jaw, the easiest one is us. Yeah. Our jaw, we have one joint. Our lower jaw moves up and down and a little bit side to side and a little bit forward and back. Very inflexible. Mosasaurs had extremely flexible skulls and lower jaws. The joint at the back of the mouth, the the quadrate bone, was very, was mobile, which allowed them a much wider gape. They had a joint in the middle of the mandible. This is something that you see in snakes and you see in some Mm -hmm. other lizards. So like halfway down the jaw bone, there was a joint there. Halfway down the jaw. And they could do that because their jaws, like most lizard jaws, all lizard jaws, are multiple (laughs) bones. Yeah, lots of pieces. So it's a joint in between bones. In mosasaurs, this allowed the the jaws, the jaws, the jaws, (laughs) the jaws to bend outwards. Mm. So they could kind of expand the space of their mouth and widen it and bend it around their prey not quite like a snake snakes are ridiculous more like a bird yeah they could expand that that gape a bit you op- you basically widen where the back of your mouth is so that the opening to the throat and everything can get wider yep. go for swallowing stuff sure is and speaking of swallowing things uh mosasaurs were not all great at slicing things up Right, they a lot of the times they had teeth for grabbing. So to help with that, they had extra rows of teeth. Not like a shark, they yeah. had teeth on the roof of their mouth. Yeah, these are pterygoid teeth on the the pterygoid bone. This is something incidentally that Jurassic World actually got right. Yes, it did. When it opens its mouth, you could see it's got the central rows of teeth. This is something that snakes have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also something you see in fish. Yes, fairly often. Very often in fish. And it's what it's great for is you just got all sorts of gripping surface in there so that if you get prey in your mouth, it's not going anywhere. Yep. Except the direction you want it to go. Yeah, that's why having those recurved teeth that points toward the throat. Sure does. As for their food, there have been... So mosasaurs are so well known. It's awesome. There are a lot of really great mosasaur specimens and a lot of really great depositional environments so we have found a bunch of gut contents (laughs) for mosasaurs so fossils that are deposited with bones of prey animals in the belly area oftentimes partially digested oh that's fun there have been fish bones and shark bones found in mosasaur guts turtle bones uh at least one case of a tylosaurus that the next three are all tylosaurus tylosaurus (laughs) is big kind of a big deal uh, there's one uh, case, uh, specimen of Tylosaurus that has Hesperornis remains. Oh, that's in awesome. its gut. This is one of the Cretaceous diving birds. <laughs> there is another Tylosaurus. Actually, it might have been the same Tylosaurus, actually, that has the remains of a Plesiosaur in its gut. And there is a Tylosaur remain, a fossil, 
that has the bones of Clydastes, a smaller mosasaur, in its gut. Nice. I like to imagine that you would cut open a mosasaur and it'd be like a tiger shark. That's exactly, yeah. <laughs> Any, anything and everything <laughs> comes spilling out of this thing's guts. <laughs> what does it eat? If it's in the water, pretty good bet. That. <laughs> See that thing in the water? That. Yeah, that's, that's lunch today. There have also been ammonites found with possible mosasaur bite marks in them, mm. which is pretty cool. Now, I mentioned before that there's some uh, cool stuff going on with the teeth. Oftentimes, the, the teeth of mosasaurs are simple sort of cone shapes. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of cases of them being mistaken for dinosaur teeth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And mosasaur teeth are very commonly... Uh, these are commonly sold. You buy a mosasaur tooth. Yes. Uh, they have these cone-shaped crowns. Uh, watch out for fakes, episode 49. Some are more slender in some species of mosasaur. Some are more robust uh, and beefier. Sometimes they come with serrated edges, which is which cool. is something we see in sharks and in dinosaurs. And there are some mosasaurs that have a little bit of specialization in their teeth. Uh, there are a number that exhibit what is called heterodonty. Yay. Which describes heterodonty, different teeth. So there are a bunch of mosasaurs uh, that, for example, uh, there was a genus called Carinodens, which it, its name is named for the teeth, which has grabby teeth up front and crushy teeth in the back. Yeah, that's a very common setup for teeth. You see that in lots of, I mean, even, even alligators have sharp yep. teeth up front. blunt. So that's a really cool thing to see that mosasaurs also did it. Yeah, so the you know, slenderer, pointier teeth in the front, blunter, robust teeth in the back. Gators today do use that. Those back teeth are great for turtle shells. Turtle shells, absolutely. YouTube that. It's disturbing yeah turn your volume up if you haven't eaten yet <laughs> <laughs> the genus i mentioned before plotosaurus that was very ichthyosaur like also had smaller teeth in a, a sort of slenderer snout like ichthyosaurs mm-hmm. and then there were you know there are a handful of mosasaur taxa mosasaur species that had sort of heavier teeth uh some that had more crocodile like jaw and tooth structure and then there's globidens i will try if i i I should be able to i will post a picture of globidens teeth in the blog post globidens teeth are shaped like balls (gasps) it's got the root and then it is this like a fist on on top it is named globidens for its globular (laughs) globe-shaped teeth Sort of like a caiman lizard. Like a caiman lizard. Sort of like a caiman lizard. Oh. Uh, this is something you see you, you see every now and then. Organisms that have these what are called durophagus teeth for eating hard stuff. Yeah, which is a cool name. Uh, this has been suspected to be an adaptation for eating clams and other shellfish. And indeed, there is a specimen of globidens that has what appears to be in its guts the crunched up remains of Cretaceous clams. There you go. Which is fantastic. That's so cool. This was a clam-eating, rock-toothed mosasaur. Well, because so often we, we only ever see the pictures of the mosasaurs with those very classic cone-shaped, round, recurved teeth. Snake teeth, you know, but 
a little oh, more robust. Ther- theropod teeth, yeah, really. Yeah. You know, like Allosaurus type teeth. They're just those, and, and you know, with little spaces in between. teeth. Yeah, a little yep. crocodile. Usually they, they had, like, some, some Mosasaurus teeth are almost like crazy recurve like a banana like some yeah. of them go- and that's very uh varanid yes very it is. very komodo dragon like but that's typically all you ever see and a lot of the when you see them at fossils you know collectors and things like that that's what they usually have is those you know finger width tooth right to know that they had all these varieties that there are ones with crushing teeth that there are ones with slender teeth that there are ones who had a mouth because the the ones with grabbing up front crushing and back that's not just good for taking on turtles that's a mouth that says i'm going to eat whatever comes up front of me if i need to crush yes. it i can crush it if i need to grab a fish i'm going to grab a fish that's a generalist that's a generalist alligators are generalists they if it i'm gonna if it fits in my mouth i'm gonna eat it and nope. so the fact that mosasaurs were doing all of this is really really cool like that's it makes sense since they became globally dominant that they would do this but you don't usually hear about it so it's it's yeah. nice to really get to see the variety yeah they had crazy just super cool diversity mosasaurs were not free from predation <gasps> as a small note Blasphemy. Uh, we i mentioned the the clydastes that was eaten by a tylosaur there is also at least one case of a the teeth of a ginsu shark <laughs> found associated with, possibly embedded in, partially digested mosasaur bones. That's fantastic. So mosasaurs were also being eaten by things. Another really fascinating thing we've learned about mosasaurs regards the way that they moved. But before I can tell you about the way that they moved, I have to tell you about that platycarpus specimen that I mentioned earlier. Which brings me to reason number five, why mosasaurs are the best aquatic animals of all time. They left us some truly incredible fossil specimens. As I mentioned, Platycarpus is one of those genera that was around very early on, uh, since very early on in the Mosasaur time. This particular specimen was found in the Western Interior Seaway in Kansas. It was about five to six meters long. So again, we're in that great white shark size range, right? 15, 20 feet. This was studied by Lindgren et al. in 2010. This specimen is abundant with traces of soft tissue. Discoloration in the sediment, impressions of things in the sediment, the leftover sort of traces of where once there was soft tissue. This includes, but is not limited to, scale impressions, traces of the internal organs, Big sort of reddish patches that may or may not represent different organs inside the body. Possible uh, evidence of the remains of eye tissue, retinal tissue in the eyes. Nice. What appear to have been pigments. Uh, The gut had fish scales in it. And one of my favorite things, you can see uh, some uh, uh, evidence of, of soft tissue remains of the trachea. Oh. The windpipe. And you can see where it splits. So just like in us, the trachea goes down the throat and then it splits and goes to the the two different lungs, which suggests that mosasaurs had paired lungs. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wait a minute, why is that unusual? Doesn't everything have paired lungs? Snakes don't. Mm -mm. Snakes have reduced one of their lungs uh, and, and expanded the other 
Because they're tubes. Yeah. And you can't fit it. Mosasaurs didn't do that. Also, they have shortened tracheae, which is something that also whales have. Because uh, of their short necks. Yeah. Which is super cool. That's awesome. Incidentally, uh, if you look at Mosasaur art, uh, a lot of early depictions of Mosasaurs have these frills running down their backs. Yes, yeah. Which was based on, uh, from what I've read, a misinterpretation of similar tissue in an early Mosasaur specimen. Oh. That it was, it was, it was tracheal tissue or, or, or similar uh, soft tissue that looked like it had this ridge. And then later on, we realized they did not. So no frills on our Mosasaurs, at least not that we know of. Yeah, that's it. I also like the that scale impressions were found because so often when they are drawn or colored, they, they are made to look smooth like a whale or dolphin. Uh, yeah. And remembering that they are big lizards and would very yeah. likely have been scaly and potentially, because like you don't have to be super smooth to be efficient in the water. You can be bumpy and it works oh, yeah. very well. In fact, sometimes bumpiness helps mm, with mm. aerodynamicity. And it can help with stealth. Mosasaur scales are, there's all sorts of cool variety in Mosasaur scales. And indeed, there are some that have keeled yes. ridges that have been interpreted as either hydrodynamic or stealth. Yes. That it breaks up the, the, the body image. Mm -hmm. But none of those are why I brought up this platycarpus. That's not true. All of those are why I brought up this platycarpus, but in this particular section, I'm talking about how they moved. This platycarpus specimen was one of the first specimens that showed us definitively that the tail of this mosasaur went backwards from the body and then bent downwards. Yeah. So it goes out for a bit and then it bends down. Just slopes. Which means that the tail had a little swoop downwards at the end of it which is something we see in ichthyosaurs yep it's something you see in the marine crocodiliforms yep and it suggested to researchers that this you know early depictions of mosasaurs had just this sort of long croc-like tail yeah but very much like the sea snake it just goes out and it flattens yep goes out it's flat and that's it it's just a long tail this suggested that it had a fin. Yeah. Kind of like a shark, kind of like ichthyosaurs would have had, which changed our understanding of how they swam. Mm -hmm. So early understandings of, of, uh, of mosasaurs had them swimming in a, a swimming process, a swimming behavior called anguilliform <laughs> motion. This is the way eels swim. It's the way that snakes, sea snakes swim. The whole body is moving in a sinuous motion. Yeah, that you're just you're you're putting a ripple down the entire spine, just a yep. back and forth like a ribbon. And you do that because your whole body is then involved in propulsion. Mm -hmm. Your whole body is acting like a tail, a ribbon, whatever to to move through the water. But animals with the big tail fins, like sharks, like a lot of fish, like ichthyosaurs tend to use their tails more heavily in propulsion. If you look at the way that a shark swims, sharks swim, and this this actually has a name too. Uh, these the, the, This form of swimming is carangiform, <laughs> or the more extreme version is thumniform, which describes an animal whose body barely moves at all side to side, yeah. and the tail is doing most of the work. This is the, the crocodile mode of swimming where your torso is just almost motionless and then the tail is doing that 
nice serpentine and pushing you forward. Yep. If you look at sharks, mm -hmm. right? Sharks are using their fins mostly for steering. Yep. The propulsion, the heavy lifting, so to speak, the heavy pushing is being done by the back end. So found this mosasaur. We said, hey, the fact that its tail swoops downwards suggests that it probably had a lower lobe and an upper lobe that it could have used like a shark's tail to swim more tail propelled. And they inferred that it would have had a hypocircle tail. Hypocircle means the bottom fluke is bigger than the top lobe. Yeah. Which is a cool inference from the shape of the tail. And then three years later, the same researcher and uh, several colleagues published on a different incredibly preserved specimen, this one from Jordan, from the very end of the, the Cretaceous, a, spe uh, a type of mosasaur called Prognathodon. This one included soft tissue impressions all around the body, including the impression in the sediment of the shape of the upper lobe of the tail. Beautiful. Which confirmed that this specimen, and almost certainly Platycarpus, which, notably, the second specimen is from the very end of the Cretaceous, and the Platycarpus specimen is from far earlier in Mosasaur times, which suggests that a hypocircle tail, and thus the tail-dominated mm -hmm. type of swimming, was probably widespread in Mosasaurs. This is actually really interesting because... A lot of early literature on mosasaurs indicate, suggests that they are ambush predators, whereas something like a shark or a, a ichthyosaur would be more pursuit predators. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I think people thought that is because uh, mosasaurs were inferred to have been less efficient swimmers, in part because they were doing that eel-like motion, yeah. because they they weren't as 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 stable in that the movement like sharks yeah. are. Well, sea snakes and eels don't chase their prey because even though a a big S, you know, swimming pattern is a great way to swim, like there's lots and lots of yeah, creatures. It works. Yeah, it works really, really well, but it's not necessarily fast and it's not very no. powerful. And it also keeps moving your head around. Yes, your head is moving back and forth and back and forth every time you make a stroke. So it's not really good for accurate powerful fast swimming it's good just for getting from place to place and very maneuverable swimming you see this in uh great whites have these lobed tails that are good for fast swimming but nurse sharks have almost no bottom lobe to their tail it's just a long flat ribbon because they're mm -hmm. swimming more like a sea snake because they're not chasing anything they're moving around crevices and caves and around yep. nooks and crannies and that's better for maneuverability so it would make sense that you were ambushing or pinning your prey somewhere yes but the fact that they had these hypocircle tails i wonder if that is part of the reason that we thought that they were ambush predators it wouldn't surprise me if these were fast swimming yeah pursuit predators especially uh, some of the the later more uh there's a word a fusilla form mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is torpedo shaped yep. bodies very hydrodynamic it 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 would not make much sense to have that big paddle on your tail if you aren't use it for using it for powerful swimming yeah incidentally for those of you who are uh word nerds <laughs> hypocircle tails are tails like these where the bottom lobe is bigger than the top lobe 
hetero circle yeah. is more like your great white shark, where the top lobe is bigger than the bottom lobe. And homo circle is where the lobes are roughly the same size. To give you really quick, most sharks have heterocircle. Most fish have homocircle. Not many animals today have uh, hypocircle. But it was the norm, it seems, for ichthyosaurs and mosasaurs. Which is cool. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. Hey, speaking of cool things, the sixth reason why mosasaurs <laughs> is the coolest aquarium of all time is they were probably warm-blooded. Right? So earlier in this episode, Will talked to us about uh, body temperature regulation in large sharks. This is actually a common thing in aquatic tetrapods, uh, in, in aquatic animals in general. Yeah. Large sharks tend to have a way to regulate their body temperature. Obviously, whales and dolphins are, are warm-blooded. I mentioned before that giant sea turtles. Yeah in part, are maintaining at least a high body temperature because they're just big. Yeah. Keeping in mind that what makes something, quote, warm-blooded is, in part, maintaining a high temperature, achieving a high temperature, but also maintaining stably yes. a high temperature, not fluctuating up and down. And when we say high, mainly it means higher than the environment around you. Yes. You you don't have to be cold when it's cold. Out. Yes. And that important when you're in the water because air cold air is cold cold water takes your heat away much faster sure does so it's important ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs have both been analyzed and and found support to suggest that they were at least somewhat endothermic at least somewhat warm-blooded so for a long time the question has been what about mosasaurs a number of studies have been done to try to calculate body temperatures in mosasaurs, often using similar uh, techniques to what Will described before. Yay! With isotopes, different ratios of isotopes can tell you, uh, occur in different temperatures of body heat, right? Different, different body temperatures. Yeah, temperature changes how chemistry interacts, so you get different things. A couple of notable studies, uh, there was one in 2010 that found, that, uh, by Bernard et al., 2010, that found that mosasaurs appear to have been possibly uh, somewhat affected by the external temperature, but not entirely. That comparing their body temperature to the external temperature seems to suggest that they were able, at least somewhat, to maintain a higher body temperature. And then there was another study, uh, much more recently, Harrell et al., in 2016, that looked at oxygen isotopes and compared three different mosasaurs with fish and seabirds from the same area. Oh, that's cool. This allowed them to get a sense of what the body temperatures were in all the creatures and compare them to each other, which is really cool. Nice. They found that the fish were maintaining body temperatures in roughly the high 20s degrees Celsius. The bird they tested, Ichthyornis, remember episode 37, was in the high 30s mm -hmm. in body temperature, which makes sense. Fish, cold-blooded. Birds, warm-blooded. The mosasaurs they tested ranged throughout the mid-30s. Ooh. And in fact were closer to Ichthyornis, which suggests that they were maintaining a higher body temperature than the cold-blooded animals that they were living alongside. Interesting. So we have very good reason to suspect that mosasaurs were warm-blooded animals. They yeah. at least partially, 
probably, according to that one a little more intensely, warm-blooded. Being warm-blooded has a bunch of cool benefits. Uh, for one, just like we were discussing just now, a more active lifestyle yep. is typically associated with warm-bloodedness. And life in cooler places. Yes. Mosasaurs have been found, as I mentioned, around Antarctica and up in the Arctic. This now opens up the lower in- ends of the latitudes. Yeah. Which is important if you're taking For over the world. world. Domination. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, it would not have been as cold back then as it was as it is today, but it still would have been it's still high latitudes. Well it's and it's relative you know, if you're used to the equator, whatever temperature the earth is, relatively the pole's still gonna be noticeably colder. So it's yep. gonna affect how you live. And speaking of how they lived, one last note on Mosasaur biology, on a Mosasaur, uh, the life of a Mosasaur, and also the seventh reason why Mosasaurs are the best aquatic animals of all time. They, despite being reptiles, didn't need no nests or nurseries the for their babies. Because the Mosastork used to come. Yeah. And it would just drop the Mosastork. Boosh. Just a, no. it's like splashdown landings like the, the nasopods. <laughs> it dropped it like Captain America out of the sky. <laughs> early on, researchers uh, suggested, early on, like 1800s, 1900s, researchers suggested that mosasaurs uh, may have laid eggs, because, you know, that's what reptiles do. Yeah. Like sea turtles. Yeah, sea turtles, very famously, come up on land. Even semi-aquatic things like crocs and yep. like... Right, the, our marine iguanas lay their eggs on land. Early on, researchers noted that we had not, we, we have all these fossil sites with all these wonderfully abundant mosasaurs, but no babies. So they suggested maybe they were laying them somewhere else, and that's why we're not seeing the babies. But this does not uh, <laughs> hold water <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Number one, mosasaurs' bodies are not built for land motion. Nah. They had these big chests, like these big deep rib cages. Uh, their hips weren't attached to their vertebrae anymore. <laughs> and they had hypocircle tails, tails that bent downwards, which would have made them really bad. That effectively gives land. them a, a tow hook. Yeah, you have your dragging your own anchor yep. <laughs> around with you. Later on, there were reports of possible embryonic remains within an adult mosasaur. And in fact, there's been a, a few reports of mosasaurs or mosasaur relatives that appear to have baby remains within them. Uh, similar things have been found with ichthyosaurs, which helps to, to demonstrate that they gave live birth. Uh, one of the specimens found with potential embryos is an agialosaur, oh. presumably ancestral to mosasaurs. So this began to raise the question of whether or not mosasaurs gave live birth. And we suspect that Indeed, they did. This is not unusual even among squamates. Nah. Uh, lizards and snakes have evolved numerous times to give live birth to their young. Sharks have evolved to give live birth. Obviously, mammals do. Ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs are both uh, understood to give live birth. Mosasaurs, too. It's just a, a good thing to do if you're living in the water. Well, if you're built for swimming in open water, to lay eggs, you need to be able to get to a surface which yeah. you are no longer you you are designed to effectively fly in space like <laughs> you you are yes. <laughs> you're no longer moving along surfaces 
Sharks that still do that, bottom-dwelling sharks, many of those still lay eggs because, yeah, you don't have a need to get rid of those eggs because you can nestle them in a rock because you're built like a snake that can fit into places. But if you're a great white, how in the world are you supposed to get down to the ground as, yeah. as a great white? You're not designed for that anymore. It would make sense nope. for mosasaurs that the same case is true. Now, what great whites do is they uh, tend to leave their babies in nurseries. Nurseries. So one of the, the well-known areas that is thought to be a nursery, I am excited to know, is the south shore of Long Island. Yep. Uh, which is where I'm from. So the youngest great white sharks tend to be found in areas like that. Shallow waters, protected from the dangers of the deep, with abundant food, so that when you're born at, you know, great whites are born at a mere four feet, you're protected for a while. So researchers, had, you know, once we figured out, all right, mosasaurs give live birth, we were wondering maybe they have their babies in shallow water areas. But we don't think so. Ooh. Because there have been a number of findings of extremely young mosasaurs, like uh, what we call neonates, newborns, in depositional environments that would have been the open ocean. Interesting. In cases as much as a few hundred kilometers, a couple hundred miles from what would have been the shore. Hmm. So it's, if they're hanging out in the shallows, there's no good reason why we should be finding newborns out in the middle of the ocean. So it appears, it seems, that mosasaurs may very well have been giving birth like whales do. Yeah. In the open ocean. I think that's how whales do it. In the open ocean. And researchers have suggested that instead of the sort of typical strategy of of a lot of reptiles of having just a bunch of babies, mm -hmm. mosasaurs may have been having a smaller number of larger babies. Yeah. It's been estimated that mosasaurs may have been as small as one to two meters, mm -hmm. three to three, you know, four, four, six, seven feet long at birth, depending obviously on who's having the baby. Yes. There was a study in 2015 that found a very, very young Clydastes, back to Clydastes, out in the open ocean, an ancient open ocean environment that was estimated to have only been about two thirds of a meter or about two, two, maybe three feet huh. long which is probably near its birth size. Interesting. So these were animals that started out just a couple meters long out in the open ocean uh, after mama dropped them off and then would eventually develop into extremely diverse, extremely successful, very active, in some cases, ridiculously large marine predators. I can only hope with ones being born fairly small out in the open ocean that they have a life cycle like a barracuda where babies school together in huge groups and then when they get big they go off as individuals <laughs> that i was actually wondering if if that if there if we would see any parental care right because if you're having your tiny baby in the open ocean you know, if, if they are like whales or dolphins hanging around, which also wouldn't be unheard of for, you know, I, I know I hear you cry out there, listeners, but lizards, uh, there's there is mm -hmm. parental care to a degree known uh, in snakes even. Yes, that's true. That will let the babies hang around. They'll hang out in the nest and the babies will hang out in there 
and they'll keep an eye on him for a while. Yeah. I do like the Barracuda idea. Right? Just just a swarm. <laughs> uh, I don't know what a group... What's a group of lizards called? <laughs> I, um, oh, I don't. That This is a good question. Right? It probably varies. Like, but that that would be very interesting. But also, party. <laughs> going back to the the whale metaphor, you know, comparison, it would make sense that if you're a large ocean predator and you're having one well developed young, that you it's now much more reasonable to just have that young stay nearby for a yep. while to protect it. You know, that would be that would be a very reasonable behavior to uh, yeah. expect potentially, which is well, it- interesting. And we also tend to see parental care associated with smaller numbers of young. Yes. In part, because you put a lot of effort into your one or two babies. It's a bigger investment. Yeah, like a bird. This is uh, one of the the answers to the often repeated myth of that that a bird will abandon its baby if if you touch it. If you find a baby bird, the mother will abandon it. It's like... That mother put a ton of effort into raising that one chick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to have to do a lot worse than poking it to, to make her give it up. This is the same reason that most human parents don't kill their kids no matter how annoying they get. Because <laughs> we're a big investment. We sure are. And we typically hit that annoying point in the teens. And by that point, you've put almost 18 years into it, and you're not going to give and up it's now. Just, it's just not worth it. Nah. No. Nah. <laughs> you don't want to be a quitter. And all of this is why... When it comes to secondarily aquatic tetrapods, <laughs> mosasaurs really are the most extreme. <laughs> that was a good show. It was a good show. I had a ton of fun putting this one together. Super happy to get to talk about lizards again. It's been too long. Uh, keep your eyes out and ears out in another 48 episodes for another lizard's or whatever you all want to suggest out there. The most oddly timed tradition. <laughs> every every 48 episodes offset by three. <laughs> Starting at three, and every 48 from there. We will talk about Mosasaurus. Before we go, before we wrap it up for the year, because we just want to, we just, we want to prolong it. Yeah. We don't, want to, we don't want to let it go. We're holding on. One more thing. We have a patron question. It's actually our last patron question on our list for yeah. the year to tackle. As you may very well know, one of the benefits of being a patron is you can submit questions to us for us to ponder and answer on the podcast. This, the final question of 2018, comes from an oft-referenced patron on our podcast, Lydia. Lydia says, I have a speculative evolution topic. Go on. So we might be here a while. Now, she does suggest we bring in Allie, our friend Allie. Uh, which we have not. We have not talked to Allie about this. I believe Allie's in Kenya again. All right. So, or or about to be there. So a, l- a little busy. Little busy. But well, we'll see if we can get her her input at some point. But for now, Lydia says post Yellowstone eruption kudzu survives in the U.S. South and gives rise to tangled plains of kudzu instead of grass. What kinds of animals might live in this new biome? Now, what she's referring to, of course, with the Yellowstone eruption yes. is the Yellowstone supervolcano. So this is our this is our setup. Yep. The Yellowstone supervolcano goes off and wipes things out. And now instead of grasslands, we have kudzu lands. Will, what's kudzu? So kudzu, for a bit of background, I 
grew up in Georgia, which is covered <laughs> is, in the stuff. Covered in kudzu. It literally, there are parts where you can't read some of the signs. Kudzu was a it's an Asian vine that was brought into uh, control erosion to stabilize areas for erosion. Well, kudzu grows crazy fast. Like we're talking multiple inches in a day. They grow much faster than bamboo. Take take care or they'll come after you. I always loved that scene because that's what my backyard looked like (laughs) (laughs) and one of the houses I grew up in. Kudzu overgrows just any plant that grows here in the southeast of the U.S. It outcompetes. There are whole sections of forest where the kudzu has completely covered from top to bottom entire trees. And the tree now on the inside is dead because it's been cut off from all sunlight. And it is now just a pillar covered in kudzu. So we're picturing just this plane of tangled vines growing over shrubs and rocks and everything. And they have these little sprout, these little stems that come up with three big broad leaves. And the, the vines are fuzzy, which is weird. It's very rough and itchy, but fuzzy vines growing over everything. And as soon as we got this question, I got tons of ideas. <laughs> Lydia suggested, dominated by flyers and undergrowth dwellers, something like the African lily trotters, but much bigger. I can't see, she says, thin-legged ungulates, that is, hoofed mammals, doing well in a giant tripping hazard. Will, as our resident speculative evolutioner, what do you think? I have so many ideas. So I completely agree with the undergrowth dwellers. The... One idea I had after reading this question that my brain has gotten hooked on, but is something that you can actually see happen in kudzu. Kudzu does not just grow along the ground. Uh, when kudzu dies and dries out, it's not like your um, typical vines that are all green and squishy. Mm-hmm. It becomes like woody. Ooh. It dries out and it can be very, it can get very thick, but it can get very tough. So then what you end up having because it's very fast growing, is kudzu growing on top of old kudzu. Oh. So if kudzu dominated, you could end up having like a kudzu reef situation kind of thing going where there are multiple layers of old kudzu that are growing and I'm sure would eventually as things rot collapse in and make giant empty spaces where things can move into very much like when a tree falls in the Amazon. But like if you picture, uh, once again in the Amazon, there are... Uh, you know, the figs that grow on other trees and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Trees there. Every now and then the tree will die and rot out, and then you'll have this hollow lattice work of yeah, vines. Yeah. Kudzu can kind of do that. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not <laughs> quite as strong. It's very willowy and very, uh, like weaved basket material almost. But you can end up having this very deep, it's not going to be like ground cover like grass. Cause I can, ex- I can definitely tell you it's not. We had a backyard full of kudzu. It would be up to hip height of just layers of vines and kudzu. And so you would have probably feet depth, you know, you know, six feet easy of just kudzu down where things are going to be in very low light crawling through the kudzu. Snakes are probably going to do great in there. Yeah, I was thinking my first thought was uh, the way that uh, in, in a lot of densely vegetated areas you'll get rabbits yes and mice will make sort of their little game trails yeah the pathways the tunnels they'll make their little pathways it would just be all that yeah just the like a hamster tubes running throughout this lattice work 
that's going to be constantly shifting, collapsing, and it yeah, it's going to be bizarre. The other thing that's going to be very interesting to see is the reason kudzu is such a problem now is there's not anything that eats it really here. So yeah. it'd be interesting to see what develops to take advantage of this. Rodents. Rodents. I also agree that thin-legged ungulates would not do well if we could get an elephant-esque. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> bulldozing through, stomping it down, flattening it. You know, yeah, like a like a thick-legged bison. Thick-legged bison is exactly where my brain was going. Something like just just or like a horse. Mm-hmm. We have horses nowadays in North America. Just stomping its way and kicking its way through, carving yeah. open trails. Yeah, I mean, it, you would get some very interesting dynamics here. Now, there's definitely plants that I would assume could grow to compete, you know, between the stuff. But, I mean, kudzu already dominates most tree areas. So, yeah, it'd be, you'd also have, like, if we were able to, crazy archaeology stuff going on of kudzu just entombing stuff. of structures of the past i do think that uh because because lydia mentioned flyers Mm -hmm. i suspect that small birds would do very well oh yeah being able to just flit from from vine to vine or and they'd be able to go down into the vines and then take flight out into the open and so they just disappear below the low-lying canopy I don't know that a, like a bird of prey. If your if your job is swooping down and grabbing mm-hmm. something, don't. If there's not open, if we're imagining just six foot deep kudzu everywhere, yeah. and all the life is under is in the undergrowth. Unless if there are trees around, yeah, for the birds of prey to roost in, they could potentially hunt the little birds. Yep. in the air when they come out to when they come out now. She mentioned uh, African lily trotters, which are those really wide-footed birds that walk on top of the lily pads in Africa, and they have such Uh, wide feet that they displace their weight. I could absolutely see some (laughs) birds doing stuff like that, but even if they were staying in the branches, when you're in that dense of an area, you might not need to fly, and you might get a, you know, burrowing owl, owl sort of thing where now you get longer legs and you're like monkey climbing around in the branches Oh, man. Looking for, you know, you're just using these long, grippy-footed secretary bird legs almost or something to crawl around inside the branches and look for prey. I really like the thought of, it, it's like like a, a walking over the canopy. Mm-hmm. These big birds. Oh, that, Lydia, that is a good question. It's, I, I love it so much. It's a cool idea. And it's nostalgic for me. Like, kudzu's an invasive species, and it's terrible (laughs) for the ecosystem here in the southeast of the United States. But I grew up, like, the house my brother was born in had a yard full of it in the backyard. Like, it was just, (laughs) there. we literally had, like, two or three acres of kudzu. And I loved it as a kid because it was, like, Jumanji vines. So, thank you. That was a fun one for me to answer. Very nice. Listeners... Thank you for joining us on this episode. Thank you for joining us in the year 2018. Happy New Year. We will return in a fortnight. That fortnight will be in January of 2019. As always, thank you to the listeners who suggested this episode. Thank you to Lydia for that answer, or that, that patron question. 
Thank you to our patrons who support us. Thank you to everybody who, who, who tunes in. If you want to support us, you can contribute to Patreon. Yeah. You can share our podcast with your friends. Yeah. You can leave us reviews on iTunes. All of those things help. Nice ones. Follow us on social media. Leave comments. Interact with us. We do this for our community, and we'd love we'd love that we have a little common descent community building, and we want to see that continue. Absolutely. Anything you want to hear from us, let us know. As always, we hope we have filled your minds with thoughts of prehistoric sea monsters and planes of kudzu <laughs> as you go in to the new year. Will, is there anything else for us to say as we wrap up 2018? Thanks for joining us for our first full calendar year of the podcast. Oh, that is a good point. This is the first that time we've gone first through the entire calendar. Year. Wow. Keep an eye out for more awesome stuff over our next full year. Thanks, everyone. It's been awesome. Happy, happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.